This is the Bible Book Club, where each episode we dive deep into the only book written 2,000 years ago that can still change your life today. Welcome to the club! Last time on Bible Book Club was chapters 8 through 10. Then we studied how Moses modeled obedience. He was an example to the priests, and he was commanded to ordain them. And Aaron and his sons became the first priests in a long line from the tribe of Levi. The tabernacle was open for business, and Israel had a place to worship. It was time for church, y'all. It was time. Time for church. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire from God consumed the priest's offering. Not long after, the fire consumed Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who did not follow Moses' example of obedience. It was an example of what not to do with all of the offerings. Serving as a priest, though, is serious business, and there was no room for error. Aaron suffered in silent obedience. His commitment and courage has grown since his error in Exodus. So he's redeemed himself at this point in our story. So today, in our pyramid-shaped outline, which is in the show notes, it is a great graphic. If you've never studied Leviticus and you kind of want to get it in your head, we are almost to the top of the pyramid where we're going to make a turn. We started at the base with chapters 1 through 7, where we read laws for ritual sacrifice. So that first segment was ritual sacrifice. Remember those five offerings, burnt grain, fellowship, sin, and guilt? We're going to have them in this episode, too, as just a kind of part of something. The second segment was chapters 8 through 10, which Heather just recapped. That was the priest ordination. So now we have ritual sacrifice. We have priests. And this next section in our outline is chapters 11 through 15. Today, we're going to cover just chapter 11, but these are all going to be the laws for ritual purity. So we covered ritual sacrifice. We added the priests, and now we have laws or rules for ritual purity. If you recall from episode three and four, the sin offering is also called the purification offering. I want to go back and explain this concept. The goal of that purification or sin offering was forgiveness for sin and purification from sin. So it atoned for sin, and then the offerer is showing that they are sorry and receiving forgiveness. Now, the concept of purity versus sin in the Bible may not be what you think it is. Purity is most often described in the Bible as something is clean, pure, or unclean, impure. Clean and unclean are mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. As a concept, being clean or unclean is important for the Old and the New Testament. The concept of purity does not go away in the New Testament, where over 50 of those verses are located. In the New Testament, however, being clean gets a new process that is referred to by some of my favorite people in John, Paul, and Timothy. TBD, we will discuss this in episode eight. Now, sin and impurity were both things that need to be taken away or atoned for. However, they were different. Sin was morally wrong. 
Sin was and is an action. Impurity was not morally wrong. Impurity to Israel was a state of being. Impurity was one of three ritual states of being. It was tied to ritual. This is so foreign to us because we don't have these rituals anymore, but we can learn from the implied meaning of purity in these rituals. The three ritual states of being for an Israelite were at the time, you could be impure, you could be pure, or you could be holy. At any given time, you were in one of these three states, and there were laws for each state of being. For example, a person who was impure cannot participate in a fellowship offering. A person who was pure could participate in a fellowship offering. A priest who was pure and ordained is holy and could oversee the offering in the tabernacle. Is this kind of like why in the story of the Good Samaritan where the priest comes by and the guy is beaten up on the side of the road, he doesn't stop because he doesn't want to become impure by touching the blood. Correct. That is exactly correct. And that's why it was really important for them because it defined, they kept moving in and out of these states and your life was ordered around what state you're in. Oh, I'm impure today. I can't do this. Or, oh, I'm pure today. I'm going to go make an offering. It it just totally defined where you were. Now, a modern analogy to this would be a person with COVID is impure and cannot go visit a new baby in the hospital. Mm. A person who is healthy is pure and can go visit a new baby in the hospital. A doctor who is healthy and sterilized can perform a C-section and deliver a baby in the hospital. I like that you made that distinction using the modern COVID example because... Sometimes you think or I think of purity as something that I did that could be pure or make me pure or unpure. But really, it could be either one. It could be because of a sin you created or it could be something that happened to you that made you impure. Impurity was most often natural. People moved between pure and impure with regularity. It wasn't a big deal to them. It had nothing to do with sin, but more with health and cleanliness. Minor impurities were easily eradicated by bathing or laundry and weren't contagious, and the purification process lasted one day. For example, we're going to cover this, not this week, but if you had sex with your spouse, which is a good thing for procreation and the future of the nation of Israel, you had to bathe before coming in contact with others. Duh. You're just impure until you do that. Major impurities required more rites for cleansing because they were contagious and required at least seven days before you were clean enough to engage in worship or contact with others. The point is that being impure was not morally wrong, and people moved in and out of it during daily life. Why then? Why, if some of these life situations were completely natural, would it be considered impure at all? A few episodes ago, we introduced you to Mary Douglas, a Christian and a social anthropologist. Anthropology is the scientific study of patterns of human behavior in societies throughout the ages. Mary has greatly contributed to both the Christian and the Jews' understanding of the human behavior of the Old Testament Israelites. Her most celebrated book, called Purity and Danger, applies to our discussion today. In Purity and Danger, Mary explores the human tendency in most cultures to associate uncleanness or dirt with impurity or unholiness. Most cultures inherently realize that it is wrong to be dirty. And Mary explains it like this. 
As we know it, dirt is essentially disorder. Now remember, from what we've talked about before, God created a world of order, then the fall happened and there was disorder. If we shun dirt, it is, this is Mary again, if we shun dirt, it is not because of fear, nor do our ideas about disease account for the range of our behavior in cleaning dirt. Dirt offends against order. Eliminating it is not a negative movement, but a positive effort to organize the environment. If this is so, with our separating, tidying, and purifying our environment, we should interpret biblical purification in the same light. Rituals of purity and impurity create unity and experience. They are not strange eccentricities of religion. They are positive contributions to atonement or the righting a wrong. By their means, symbolic patterns are worked out and publicly displayed. Within these patterns, disparate elements, holiness and impurity, are related and disparate experience ritual is given meaning. Are you, I hope you guys are tracking with me. Well, I mean, in very simple terms, it's kind of like using hand sanitizer on your soul. On your soul, soul. yeah. (laughs) But to them, at this point, it literally was about their environment. God is setting up a nation. Reflection, continuing just a little bit more for what she says, reflection on dirt involves reflection on the relation of order to disorder and life to death. Remember, when we got kicked out of paradise, we lost that tree of life. And so now there is death. Wherever ideas of dirt are highly structured, their analysis discloses a play upon such profound themes. This is not just played out in one culture, but in many. So why associate natural dirt, such as a dead rat or menstruation with impurity? Because that's what we're going to do in the next few chapters. It reminds us that the world we live in is out of order or wrong and needs Needs atonement. In the beginning, in the world God created, none of this disorder existed. Therefore, it must be atoned for. This disorder, the impurity must be cleansed. The action of cleansing satisfies a desire in us for order. And it also protects from potential contamination because in that disorder, there's disease and death. Turning that cleansing into ritual, as we're about to see happen in these laws, these these ritual laws, these purity laws, turning that cleansing into ritual made it into something more. The repetitive ritual reminded them of the order they had lost in the garden and reminded them to look forward to the world they were promised where there is no pain and where life will be eternally free of death and impurity. God was calling the Israelites back to holiness and wholeness. Be holy as I am holy. He says it multiple times in Leviticus. Remember holiness. Remember it, desire it. That's what he's saying to them with all these laws. Okay, so impurity could be natural, as we just discussed, and a part of daily life, not a big deal, but impurity could also be sin. Sin is another form of disorder, and therefore, theoretically, sin creates dirt or pollutes. Because God is holy, he cannot be in the presence of people or things that are not clean. And he really wants to be in your presence. Correct. He wants to live in this tabernacle. That's why they have to go through these purity rituals. Each time the people sinned, they became unclean or dirty. And all that dirt on all those people created a polluted community. With 
in the polluted community was that tabernacle. The tabernacle then became defiled because it was located in the midst of the sinful people. So with ritual, they cleansed the tabernacle with the blood of the sacrifice and they cleansed the sinner. The sinner was made clean and able to stand before God again. Okay, that is why the sin offering we learned about in episode three is also called the purification offering because it purified the people and the sanctuary from sin and pollution. Got it? I know that was such a mouthful. Got it. Why bring it up now? Okay, because we're going to study purity ritual. <laughs> so in we this covered, episode. We, gotcha. we, st- we covered the sacrificial laws, the laws, the ritual sacrifice. Now we're moving to that segment for ritual purification. All right. Now, purity laws had a pattern, and not surprisingly, the pattern follows creation. I don't know if you're like me, but studying this from Genesis to now, I never knew there was so much built on that creation pattern. Leviticus 11, God who created the animals first in Genesis, gives the ritual laws for purity regarding the animals first. Then in Leviticus 12 through 15, We're going to get the outline for purity regarding the people who, of course, were created after the animals in Genesis. And not only that, there's going to be an order to the purity for people, and it's going to start with the longest purification process to the shortest, the longest being the birth of a child. And that's just another example of how we know that the Bible is God-inspired, just another example of how God has this pattern, this order that he created. No human could have thought this up and made (laughs) this such a perfect pattern. And then hundreds of years later, we get to Christ and he follows the same pattern. It's crazy. Okay, here we go. Leviticus 12 through 15 outlines purity regarding people, starting with uh, the birth of a child, which requires the most days of purification, working then down to the least days of purification. But today, we're going to cover laws for purity for animals, so the ritual purity when dealing with animals. Chapter 11 are the purity laws for food, exactly what was clean and unclean. Now, if something was pure, it was said to be clean, and if it was impure, it was unclean. So the words pure and impure really don't appear in the Bible. They use clean and unclean, but the concept is purity. There are 44 uncleans just in this first round regarding food. Chapter 11, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. All right, so this is a little, this phrase here was kind of important. The phrase of all, dot, 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 you may eat, is used three times in Leviticus. Here, regarding land animals, verse 9, regarding sea animals, and verse 21, for winged animals, land, sea, air. Note, of course, God is following the three categories in which he created the animals in Genesis. Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. So he's going to have rules for each of them. Different order than Genesis because land was most of what the Israelites ate, whereas in the Bible, it was actually sea, air, land. In Genesis, I mean. The only other place these words, of all you may eat, are used is once in Deuteronomy, where they parallel Leviticus, and twice in Genesis. Therefore, we can assume that the use of these very specific words had a meaning and a message for the Israelites. 
In Genesis 2.16, God commands, Of every tree of the garden you may eat, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you must not. Then in Genesis 3.1, the serpent cleverly uses the same words with a twist. Has God said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Moses and God want the Israelites to recall the Garden of Eden and God's prohibition of food then and, of course, what happened when they disobeyed back then because they cannot disobey now. In other words, he's saying, I'm giving you another chance. It's going to be a little more complicated this time because Adam and Eve could only not eat one thing. But God wants them to develop that muscle of obedience. So here you go. Part one, land animals. Verse three. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Water animals. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins or scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. Air animals. These are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoop, and the bat. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat, those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these, you may eat any kind of locust, cated, cricket, or grasshopper, but all other flying insects that have four legs are to regard as unclean. Okay, now animal carcasses. You will make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. Of all the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their paws are unclean for you. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up their carcasses must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. These animals are unclean for you. Of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. Of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean until evening. When one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever its use, will be unclean. Whether it is made of wood, cloth, hide, or sackcloth, put in water, it will be unclean till evening, and then it will be clean. If one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean, and you must break the pot. Any food you are allowed to eat that has come into contact with water from any such pot is 
unclean. And any liquid that is drunk from such pot is unclean. Anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean. An oven or cooking pot must be broken up. They are unclean and you are to regard them as unclean. A spring, however, or a cistern for collecting water remains clean, but anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean. If a carcass falls on any seeds that are to be planted, they remain clean. But if water has been put on the seed and a carcass falls on it, it is unclean for you. If an animal that you are allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches its carcass will be unclean until evening. Anyone who eats some of its carcass must wash their clothes, and they will be unclean until evening." Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash their clothes. They will be unclean till evening. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. It is unclean. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. There are a lot of theories for why some animals were prohibited or unclean, and I mean a lot. Some food laws protected Israel from disease. That's clear. For example, pigs spread trichinosis and vultures eat carcasses of diseased animals. Makes sense. But this does not explain all of the animals that are said to be unclean. And of course, remember, diseases evolve. COVID wasn't around a few, you know, four, three years ago. We don't know what was around then, and we don't know how many diseases did or didn't exist. So there's that too. Well, I but- feel like also... God was kind of giving them a little bit of a biology lesson here. Like they didn't have the advanced Correct. kind of science that we have today where we know why some people get sick from eating shellfish and others don't. We know it's iodine. They didn't know that back then. Mm-hmm. So he just had to make a rule like nobody can eat anything without scales or fins because they wouldn't know if that was somebody that would get sick from shellfish or not. And they didn't have refrigeration. Right. And so, you know, there were just so many differences. But Jacob Milgram, who is an American Jewish Bible scholar and a rabbi, um, rationalized that these restrictions taught the Israelites reverence for life by reducing choices and limiting the slaughter of animals, which kind of makes sense. Um, And this has merit because camels, per se, which were prohibited, were needed more for service than for food. So they couldn't eat the camels and, and therefore they were plentiful for service. Again, lots of theories. Mary Douglas proposed that categories of pure and impure could be tied to order in creation. Holiness means keeping distinct the categories of creation was her theory. The dietary laws of Leviticus represent holiness in this sense. Those animals that cross the boundaries of water, air, or land were out of place and were therefore unclean. For example, insects 
that fly like birds, but also walk on four legs like animals were an abomination in verse 20. So that was her theory. There's, but this would, this didn't work for everything either. So then you kind of wonder, okay, well, what's that? There are some people that believe even today that it is best not to eat those prohibited animals. And some of them we don't eat for cultural reasons because they're dirty, like roaches and rats. In our culture, even though they're edible, in fact, roaches have a lot of protein, and in many countries they do eat rats, we don't because for us, it's dirty, and and that's just yucky. Did you find it interesting that he specifically mentions that they can eat locusts, thinking about the plagues that got unleashed on Egypt? Yeah. Locusts, though, when you think about it, um, at least I I, I assume, since we studied the plagues, feed on vegetation. Yeah which is healthy, uh, and praying mantis do too. But when you think of roaches, they don't. So they cross, Mary, Mary Douglas would say, roaches cross, like they eat anything. They'll go in a house, outside of a house. They cross all kinds of boundaries, and therefore, they're not healthy. So Yeah, I'm still not eating a locust. No, me either. But in people Mexico, eat crickets all the time. In Mexico, crickets were served as like an appetizer at every right. restaurant oh, you went to. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm not that adventurous. Some animals we don't eat because we love them, like horses. In our culture, we don't eat we don't eat horses. They're for riding. But again, maybe the slaughter of like camels and horses kept them around for service instead of I've never tasted one either. Maybe they're not good. Uh, there are entire books written about these passages regarding biblical purity. It is a fascination for many. When we get to heaven, we will all meet in what I am sure will be a very well-attended lecture series given by God himself. Oh, I'm happy for And if you see Mary Douglas or Jacob Milgram before I do, will you point them out to me? Because I want to watch their reaction as God reveals his real reasons for these kids. Like I said, they've written pages about it. Susan has a little bit of a girl crush on Mary Douglas right I do, now. <laughs> for sure. I just want to like sit a few rows behind both of them and watch between them like, okay, who had the right theory? Um, as God kind of tells us his scoop on the whole thing. Leviticus 11 is such a good reminder to us that God does not always provide detailed explanations for his commands. We just have to wait for heaven to really know why. And in between now and then, we just have to obey. It's that simple. All right. Remember the theme for Leviticus is holiness because God asked Moses to tell Israel, be holy because I, the Lord, your God am holy. And you just read it a couple times. Be holy as I am holy. God created purity laws to set Israel apart as holy, a nation that represents God to the world. They were supposed to look different. They were supposed to obey what he says. The motivation for Israel to obey was to be holy out of love and devotion to God. Note to us, even today, we, like the Israelites, must accept that we have a limited ability to understand the will of God. However, we can gain that Moses-like character just from our decision to obey. The man obeyed. And that's his probably biggest thing we have to remember about him for us is give me that discipline that Moses developed because he didn't have it. He learned. He learned. So that gives us hope that we can learn. One thing we do understand today is that we live under the new covenant, thank goodness. In Acts 11, Peter explains 
his vision of what the new covenant means to his fellow Jews. And this was the first time this was ever explained to the church as it is today. Acts chapter 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered that the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, so there you have again that three repeat. Did you hear that? He repeated it three times, which kind of shows that completeness. The purpose of this whole vision was the revelation that the distinction between what made people clean and unclean was to stop in Christianity. Ooh, that's the moment when they didn't have to be under that law Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it came from Peter, from a vision he received from the Lord, which was repeated three times, which means like, hey, yes, this is real. You didn't just imagine it. Well, besides the fact that Jesus told them that he came to abolish the law. Correct. The food laws had served to separate and make holy the Israelites from the other nations. But through Christ, there is no separation for Christians by nation or race or anything else. In Mark 7, 14, Jesus said this about the new law. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly— All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Once again, under the new covenant, the focus is the heart. God wants us to obey, to be holy out of love and devotion to him. It is your heart that God wants, not your diet. 
How can we be holy as God is holy? Might this be a good place to introduce the path of good or evil printable that we have from all the way back, back in, in Genesis. our Genesis <laughs> study for all of us who struggle with making the right choices and who want to do a better job moving toward holiness? You can find this printable in on the show our notes. website and in the and show, in the show notes. notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. It's a great printable that kind of models, you know, the right before the fall and and the fall, how we went down this path and how we all, we're all just a repeat of Adam and Eve. And how you can get back on the path if you veer off at any time, how to get back on. Exactly. And get back on the, the path that God has for your life. Exactly. And I love that we ended this episode with my favorite subject, the heart. Mm-hmm. It all comes back to the heart. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.